The worst of it is the craving. Craving is when you feel that there is nothing that can make you feel good, nothing that can make you feel satisfied unless you use that substance. And craving actually reduces our ability to exercise free will. And, and everybody has experienced craving, whether it's for a cupcake when you're on a diet and it's somebody's birthday, or more sleep when the alarm goes off early in the morning on a cold winter day. We know what craving feels like and the enormous temptation to give into it because craving is such an unpleasant thing. So the dopamine circuit in the brain does two things. Sometimes it gives us reward, but at other times it gives us craving. And it's an enormously powerful feeling that really is what enslaves us. I'm Doug Bobst, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please, sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. And have you ever wondered why people become addicted to drugs, sex, success, porn, and social media? It all boils down to one molecule, dopamine, or as my guest today calls it, the molecule of more. Dopamine is a double-edged sword because it certainly has many positive benefits like creativity, taking action, falling in love, excitement, and ambition. But dopamine, if not managed correctly, can lead you to the depths of divorce, despair, destruction, and even death. My guest today is Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman. He is a professor and vice chair for clinical affairs in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at George Washington University. Dr. Lieberman is a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, a recipient of the Karen Foundation Research Award, and he has published over 50 scientific reports on behavioral science. He has provided insight on psychiatric issues for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the U.S. Department of Commerce, and the Office of Drug and Alcohol Policy, and has discussed mental health in interviews on CNN, C-SPAN, and PBS. We are going to talk about dopamine, which is the main subject of Daniel's book called The Molecule of More, How a Single Chemical in Your Brain Drives Love, Sex, and Creativity, and Will Determine the Fate of the Human Race. In this episode, we discuss what dopamine is and how it's responsible for things like addiction, cravings, love, sex, pleasure, and social media use. He shares why people who end up super successful end up suffering with their mental health and even turn to suicide. We get into how to handle desire and achievement in a healthy way, as well as what drugs and social media actually do to the brain. So fasten your seatbelt, get out your pen and paper so you can learn to have a healthy relationship with dopamine. And let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Dr. Lieberman, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. 
And I am so blown away by your book, The Molecule of More. And we're going to get all into things on dopamine and how dopamine is the single chemical in the molecule that drives people to become addicted to drugs, addicted to sex, money, greed, fame, can lead to death. And as you kind of put it in the book, can determine the fate of our human race. And we're going to get into that as we progress through the show. But first, like, give the audience a bit of, about your, your background, because I know that you're doing so much with uh, the addiction community and you're the vice chair of clinical affairs of psychiatry and behavioral affairs at George Washington, I believe. But like, give the audience a little bit of context on kind of what you do and what got you into really wanting to take a deeper dive into dopamine. Yeah, sure. So I'm going to go all the way back to my undergraduate education because that had such a profound influence on me and continues to influence my thinking. I went to a very interesting college called St. John's College. It's in Annapolis, Maryland. And what's odd about it is that there are no lectures, there are no tests, there are uh, no exams, and there are no textbooks. All we do is read original sources. The program is based on the great works of Western civilization and starts all the way back with Homer and the ancient Greeks and really looks at philosophy and history and religion and math and science as it evolved over the years. And so it's not the kind of preparation you might think would be typical for a physician. Uh, a lot of my classmates in medical school were biochemistry majors but I think it was very helpful for me to take a broader overview and to try to place the things I was learning about the brain and the human body in a larger perspective of how has human nature, how has human behavior been thought about over the years? So I, I had a wonderful four years studying philosophy, studying all these other topics, and I really decided that what was the single most important thing in this world was the human mind. And that's what I wanted to study. And I thought about becoming a psychologist, but one of my professors persuaded me to go to medical school. He said, a lot of the most interesting work right now is being done on the biological side. That may be where you're gonna get the most insight into the mind by studying the brain. And I think he was right. I, I think it was the right choice to go to medical school. Went there specifically to become a psychiatrist. And while I was there, I got involved in some research on substance abuse, and I became very interested in it. Treating substance abuse is a little bit different than treating other forms of mental illness. And we can get into that perhaps later. But at any rate, I, I, I went to New York University for medical school, stayed there for psychiatry, a terrific place to study psychiatry. Bellevue Hospital is associated with NYU. And the chair of our department used to call it the Noah's Ark of psychiatry. He said, if there's one anywhere in the world, we have two. And then after that, I ended up here at George Washington University, started out working in our addictions program, and then gradually moved a little bit more to bipolar disorder, depression, and other mood disorders. Wow, you got quite the background and you're definitely the perfect person to dive into this subject of, of dopamine. And I really want to get into how drugs and substances impact the mind because I think you hear a lot of people say, I don't understand 
why that person continues to make those choices. I don't understand why that person continues to put cocaine up their nose or oxy up their nose or whatever drugs they're abusing despite their life falling apart. But before we really talk about what it does to your brain on a neurological level, like I think a good way that you put it in your book on what dopamine is, it says desire is persistent, but happiness is fleeting, right? It seems to me that dopamine is just, you continually want more. And when I was doing drugs, my own experience with using painkillers, it was a lot like the buyer's remorse you, you speak about in the sense of for the audience that's never really experienced this, it was almost like eating the best meal you've ever had and feeling so good in the moment only to throw it up a minute later. That's what it feels like, felt like to me to do drugs. You get that instant euphoric feeling, that dopamine rush, and then you feel like shit right afterwards because you're like, why did I do this? So talk a bit about kind of what dopamine is on a molecular level, and then we'll get into how drugs affect dopamine in the brain. Yeah, so a lot of people have heard of dopamine. And I think that they've primarily heard it in the context of being the pleasure molecule. Dopamine is what gives you a reward. And and that's true. That's true. Dopamine is released when you eat a meal, when you're hungry, when you have sex. It's released when you win a competition. And, And that might be scoring a goal in a soccer game, or it might be your boss saying, hey, you did a great job. These are all things that release dopamine. But Dopamine is so much more than just the pleasure molecule. It turns out that what dopamine really is, is that it is the way the brain looks into the future to maximize future resources in order to make it most likely that our DNA will make it to the next generation. So one of the things we talk about in the book is that the brain divides the world basically into two segments. There's the peripersonal, and the peripersonal is the three-dimensional space around you that's within arm's reach. And whatever's in the peripersonal are are things that you have right now. could be your cell phone, a pen, a cup of coffee, but these are things that you don't have to work for. You can enjoy them. You can use them, maybe even consume them right now in the present moment. And there are brain chemicals that orchestrate our behavior when we interact with things in the peripersonal space. And we call those the here and now neurotransmitters. And and a lot of people have heard of some of these serotonin, oxytocin, endorphin, endocannabinoid. Now, the entire rest of the world that's beyond your arm's reach is called the extrapersonal space. And this is stuff you don't have. If you want something in the extrapersonal space, you're going to have to go out and get it. And that might mean working for it. That might mean making long-term plans. It's going to mean having energy and showing motivation. But most importantly, it requires desire. In order to get something you don't have, the first step is you've got to want it so that you're willing to put in the work. All of those things are orchestrated by dopamine. So rewarding us when we get what we're working for is just one small piece of what dopamine does. It also gives us desire. It gives us motivation. It gives us the tools to use abstract planning to get things that are going to require a lot more than just walking across the room to pick up a apple from a bowl. So dopamine is very much interested not in what we have now, 
It's interested in what we don't have, what we could get that would make our life a little bit better, our future a little bit more secure. And that's great. It's wonderful to be excited about things. It's wonderful to be motivated. The problem is that dopamine only works in the future. So as soon as what you want becomes what you have, dopamine shuts off. And, and that's where you get things like the buyer's remorse. That's where you get things like after you take drugs and they've worn off, it feels horrible. Mm. That's where you get things like people who work so hard for something, but they can't enjoy it once they get it. So one of the things we say in the book is that the kind of people who can most afford a beach house are least able to enjoy it. Right. They go to their beach house that they've worked for for years and years and years and they pull out their laptop and do more work. Yeah, and I guess to kind of bring it more relevant to today's times, you look at a guy like Tony Shea, right? The guy who um, started Zappos, he recently died. And people question like, how can a guy like that who made so much money, sold his company to Amazon for, I think he got like a billion dollars, has done so much great for the world. How does a guy like that, and there's many others, you look at Anthony Bourdain, you can look at Robin Williams, you can just go back and back or people, how do they struggle so much with their mental health and feel so poorly about themselves despite being so successful in other areas of your life? And I think you talk about Buzz Aldrin a lot, right? And you reference him and he's been in recovery now for a while. And it really helped me understand, I think he can help the audience understand not just um, like what happens to guys like Buzz and Tony and others, but you said something like the dopamine always wants more. And some of these people who achieve all this success, like you, it's hard to like one up walking on the moon. It's hard to one right. up selling a company for $500 million. It's hard to one up winning an Oscar. So talk a bit about what happens there and then why you think people in these positions turn to things like drugs, alcohol, suicide to deal with their problems after they achieve something so meaningful. Yeah. I think that people get desire satisfaction and happiness all mixed up together. Mm. I think we can all think of things that we believe would make us happy. When I was writing this book, I thought, if I can just get an agent to represent this, I will be so happy. And then I thought, if I can just get a publisher to publish this, I will be so happy. And we all have these feelings. Right now, I'm sure that every listener has something in the back of their mind that they want. And they think if they can just get this thing, That'll be it. They'll be happy and satisfied. But if we just think about it for a minute or two, and we look back over the course of our lives, we realize that's not true at all, that we've all gotten things that we've wanted. And as soon as we get it, we really jump on to the next thing. It, it seems as if everybody has sort of a happiness set point. And bad things can happen to people, and it will make them temporarily sad, but then they'll go back to their happiness set point. Great things can happen to people and it will make them temporarily satisfied and happy. But once again, they go back to their happiness set point. And so we don't work because we think it's going to make, well, we may think so. Working because we think it's going to make us happy long-term is a fool's errand because it absolutely is not. But just as we all have a happiness set point, we all have an ambition set point. Mm -hmm. There are people who are very content with what they have. They like to watch sunsets. They like to drink beer with friends. They, they like to chat with their mother on the telephone. They, they like to paint watercolors. 
and they have a very low ambition set point and they do tend to enjoy their life and be pretty happy. Then there are other people like these entrepreneurs who are never satisfied. And you would think if you got a billion dollars, that would be enough. But if you think that you're thinking about it wrong, because it's like saying, well, if you had a five course meal, that should be enough and you should never have to eat again. The problem is that ambition, like hunger, is never satisfied for long. So how do we begin to change the context and how we handle things like ambition and achievement and that sort of thing? Because I don't like not everyone ends up having massive success and then turns to addiction or suicide or severe mental health issues. Obviously, there's a good bit of the population that has what can be done so that people can kind of learn to smell the roses a bit better, enjoy what they do have instead of focusing on continuing to want more and more and more. Is it possible or is the brain not allow you to really do that? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe before we get that, we should go back to the question of why do successful people turn to drugs and yeah. destroy their lives when they've got so many wonderful things going on. Right. So we spoke about how there are things that stimulate the release of dopamine in the brain. And these are things that lead to evolutionary success, eating when you're hungry, having sex and winning competitions. And so the dopamine circuit is very much about keeping us alive and reproducing. And as you can imagine, it has an intense effect over our behavior because evolution drives the brain. And so one of the main purposes of the brain is to keep us alive, keep us functioning, keep us reproducing, basically keep us obeying dopamine. The thing about drugs is that it artificially stimulates the dopamine system and it'll give a bigger dopamine hit than almost any normal healthy behavior. And we kind of rate how important things are by how much dopamine they give us. So working for a six-figure paycheck is a lot more important than winning a $100 competition. And so maybe we're going to pay attention to our job instead of that silly little competition. Or if we have children and the lives of our children are in danger, we're going to drop everything to take care of them because that's the biggest priority in terms of our evolutionary success. But drugs... Drugs beat all of those things because it gives the dopamine system a chemical blast Mm. that artificially sends it into outer space. And so if you're the kind of person who really thrives on dopamine, as most successful people are, especially entrepreneurs, if you get a taste of this artificial dopamine blast, you're going to say, bingo, where have you been all my life? This is better than anything. This is better than starting companies. This is better than eating food. This tops it all. And you talk about looking from the outside, successful people destroying their lives using drugs. And it seems absolutely incomprehensible. But from the inside, it's totally rational because we all make decisions based on what give us the biggest dopamine hit. And so using that drug instead of paying the rent or going to work from the inside seems to make sense. You're totally right. When I was in the depths of my addiction, and as I alluded to earlier, I had an Oxycontin addiction. I was putting three, 400 milligrams a day up my nose. 
And yeah, it was a lot. And yeah. people continued to, to say, why are you doing the things that are destroying your life? You can't keep a job. You're ruining relationships. You've gotten arrested on felony drug charges. You don't, aren't, aren't successful. You, you're broke. Like all these things. Like, why do you keep doing it? Yeah. And I think a lot of it for me, and you describe this a lot in the book, is you get this in, in instant sensation of euphoria from the Oxycontin. And it's a double-edged sword because you're not only getting the dopamine rush, it's sedating me so that I don't have to feel the shame, feel the fears, feel my anxiety, feel the pain. It numbed all that too at the same time, which is why I believe that we are in this crisis we're in now with the opioid epidemic because people have learned to mismanage their mental health, their trauma, their pain in ways that, that don't really suit them in the best way possible. So while we're on the subject of drugs, and this is like kind of like your bread and butter, if you will. And the opioid epidemic, I think, is at the forefront of everyone's mind. Before COVID, that was like what people were talking about was fentanyl, people overdosing on heroin. Talk about what specifically about opioids causes people to really get addicted to them and why it's so hard for people to come off. Yeah, yeah. So we used to believe that the essence of addiction was physiological dependence, mm. and, and that's tolerance and withdrawal. And we know that that is a big part of opioids. You take opioids and, and, and you get this rush of pleasure. And the first time you take opioids is the best and it's never the same again. It's like chasing your own tail. Yeah. Um, chasing the dragon, right? Yeah. 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 You never get it. And so you do more and more and more trying to get it. You do get pleasure, of course, but you're chasing it. And the more you use, the more you need to use. And then if you stop, you get the other side of the equation, you get the withdrawal. With opioid withdrawal, it's pretty horrible, excruciatingly painful and uncomfortable in so many ways. And so it's the proverbial carrot and the stick. Uh, the carrot is pleasure when you use it, and the stick is horrible pain and discomfort when you don't use it. And, and that's bad, and, and that's powerful, but it's not the worst of it. The worst of it is the craving. Craving is when you feel that there is nothing that can make you feel good, nothing that can make you feel satisfied unless you use that substance. And, and craving actually reduces our ability to exercise free will. And, and, and everybody has experienced craving, whether it's for a, a cupcake when you're on a diet and it's somebody's birthday, or, or more sleep when the alarm goes off early in the morning on a cold winter day. We know what craving feels like and the enormous temptation to give into it because craving is such an unpleasant thing. So the dopamine circuit in the brain does two things. Sometimes it gives us reward, but at other times it gives us craving. And it's an enormously powerful feeling that really is what enslaves us. You're so right. And I think for people listening to this, from my experience, just listening to what you say, like people lose control over themselves when they get addicted to drugs. The yeah. drug completely hijacks their dopamine circuit and their brain is just telling them the only thing that you need to do to survive is to get and do drugs, get and do drugs every single day. It's not saying go be with your family. It's not saying go to work. I mean, I think it is in the background a little bit, but as soon as it starts to, that starts to come out, the forefront of your brain's messaging is 
get more drugs, you'll be happier, and they love you unconditionally, you'll be able to survive. One of the questions I had about dopamine on this subject is you hear people say, for instance, before they go for a run, I didn't want to run, but after I got done running, I was so happy because of the, the dopamine euphoria I felt, yet when people do drugs, it's like they, they have no issue putting whatever substance it is up their nose or doing the drug, but then they feel like crap only to feel like crap afterwards and have like a negative dopamine feeling. So how do you explain that? Does dopamine work in different ways? I mean, I know that you need dopamine to survive. I mean, you, you outline that in the book very thoroughly, but what's, what's happening there? Yeah, you know, that great feeling after you finish running is actually not dopamine. Mm. Uh, those are here and now chemicals. Okay. So I, I think that we should distinguish two kinds of pleasure. And we'll start with dopaminergic pleasure. Dopaminergic pleasure gives you excitement and enthusiasm. Uh, it's this rush that life is about to get much, much better. It's that feeling you get when your boss tells you you're getting a raise. It's the feeling you get when that cute person in the bar makes eye contact with you and you go, whoa, I think I got a chance here. That's a dopamine rush. I don't know. If, did you read Winnie the Pooh as a kid? Yeah, I did. I did. I did. Yeah. There's a great line. Chris Robin asked Winnie the Pooh, what do you like best in the world? Winnie the Pooh's about to say eating honey, of course. And then he remembers there's a moment just before you start to eat honey that's even better than eating the honey. And that's dopamine. So that's dopamine pleasure, but there's a different kind of pleasure. And that's the here and now pleasure. Highly dopaminergic people may not like the here and now pleasure as much because it's kind of touchy feely and dopaminergic people don't like that. So here and now pleasure is a pleasure of the senses in the present moment. It's a pleasure of the emotions in the present moment. It's not anticipating something like getting a raise or a promotion or eating honey. It's right here, right now. And instead of giving excitement and enthusiasm and motivation, it gives fulfillment and satisfaction and a feeling of peace and calm. And that's how you feel after going for a good run. You're not looking to the future. You're, mm. you're right here in the present moment saying, ah. Oh, I feel great. And there's nothing more you need. You are great right here, right now. And that's endorphin and endocannabinoid. Got it. So what you're saying is the dopamine is goes off when you're thinking about how good you'll feel after you run. That's dopamine. And then the here yep. and now chemicals are going off when you're finished the run and you're kind of in that present moment. Got exactly. it. So exactly. So yeah. I, I know dopamine is also responsible for control in our brain, right? You talk about that yeah. in the book. Yeah. Do you think that people end up turning to things like drugs because they've maybe lost control of their life and this is the only sense of thing they can control is what they're doing on a daily basis with getting high? Or, or how do you see that playing to people's decisions with, with dopamine? Yeah. Yeah. So we made a distinction in the brain between here and now chemicals and that are about the present and dopamine, which is about the future. And then we can make another split within the dopamine system. And we can talk about dopamine that generates desire. And that generally looks to a short-term future. Like I would like a hit of OxyContin or I would like a donut right now. And that's a dopamine circuit that's pretty deep in the brain. And it's a very primitive one that we share all the way uh, down with mammals and reptiles. 
But there's another dopamine circuit in the brain that looks farther into the future. And we call that the control dopamine circuit. And it's more advanced in humans than in any other animal. And in some ways, the control dopamine circuit and the desire dopamine circuit can come into conflict. The uh, dopamine desire circuit says, I would like another donut. The dopamine control circuit says, hey, that may be good today, but tomorrow you're going to be fat and have high cholesterol. So how about no donut? The control circuit is also able to use logic and long-term planning and abstract concepts. So I think that what happens with addiction is that we have an imbalance between the desire and the control circuits. Now, do you think this is people are predisposed through genetics or environment? Because there's a lot of people that certainly don't fall into addiction or people that don't, because of their circumstances, they don't end up turning to things like drugs, sex, and money. I mean, have you found that in your research? Yeah, absolutely. There is a genetic predisposition, right? So people with a genetic predisposition can be addicted with a very small amount of exposure. Mm. But if but pretty much anybody can get addicted if right, they have right. enough exposure. We even know for alcoholism, we even know a gene that's associated with it. I once had a patient who had that gene and he was brought into my office by his wife. And if you have that gene, you get a very powerful hedonic euphoric response to alcohol. And he told me that the first time he drank alcohol, it was as if the sky opened up and the heavenly choir began to sing. Wow. And and, and this poor guy, that's a terrible, terrible vulnerability. I couldn't help him. And I was the fifth doctor he had consulted. and Nobody could help him because the the drive to, to feed that pleasure was just too strong. Wow. So... I guess we've talked a bit about addiction and what it does to the brain and how it really hijacks it in a sense. And I guess the way I best understood it is I had a psychiatrist tell me that before you get addicted to drugs, say the thing that you love the most is maybe going to the Grand Canyon and on a pleasure scale, that's a 10. And then you start experimenting with cocaine, Oxycontin, and that that 10 becomes an eight to a seven to a six and the Oxycontin and cocaine go up to seven, eight, nine, and eventually it's a 10. And that's all that you're thinking about that will give you joy in life is doing drugs and you can't control it. So for the people listening to this that are looking at people that are still addicted to drugs, maybe you have a loved one or maybe it's yourself and you just can't understand it. It's because your brain has been hijacked by these drugs. So there's so many people that get and stay into recovery and thrive and live fulfilling life and have meaning and purpose and now and help other addicts. In your research, what has been the few things that have been really successful in helping people rewire their pleasure and desire circuits and living a a life that's in recovery and that they have reduced cravings and they feel good about where they're headed to as they move on in their future? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's a a great way of thinking about it, the way your therapist described it. Yeah. Uh, Another way I like to think about it is I like to think about addiction like cancer. It starts off very, very small. Somebody might use drugs occasionally with certain people at certain kinds of parties, and then slowly it grows and grows and grows, and it starts pushing other things out, hobbies, friends, family, job, home, health. Until like a cancer that's taken over the entire body, all that's left is the addiction. So 
what's more powerful than drugs? How do we reverse it? Well, well, interestingly, what do you think takes up most of the bandwidth on the internet? I mean, I would say probably community, right? Social media. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. The dopamine circuit is extremely powerful in terms of guiding behavior, but there is one other circuit that's even more powerful. And those are the social circuits that our desire to interact with other people is more powerful even than our evolutionary circuits that keep us alive and reproducing. And I think that that's the essence of 12-step programs like AA. And that is that they transform a need for chemicals into a need for people. And they talk about the higher power, and that's very, very important. But I think even more important than that is relying on one another. With 12-step programs, you always have someone to reach out to 24-7. When you do something good, they praise you, and that makes you feel happy. You feel part of a group. And also, if you're thinking about using drugs, you're going to let them down. And that's very aversive. That may be even a bigger stick than drug withdrawal. The idea of letting down people that care about you and that you care about. So I think the real key to helping people overcome addiction is going to be in the kinds of new relationships they're able to form. You're so spot on. And one of the things for myself personally and my friends that I know who have gotten and stayed in recovery is the importance of having a strong community and inner circle. Because on the flip side, I think one of the hard, and this is so true based on what you said, one of the hardest things uh, for people to do when they're quitting addiction is leaving their old friends. That's right. number one. That's yeah, number that's one. It, right? Am I right? I can do everything, but don't ask me to give up my friends. I, I've known them for decades. And it's yeah. because neurologically we're meant to stay connected to community and we feel this sense of, of loyalty when we're with them. And I think on top of that, this sense of guilt if we leave, the saying, okay, like, what are they going to say about me? Or they've been there for me in, in these times when really – they're contributing in some way or indirectly to your life falling apart. And you really have to get a grasp on that and move forward and know that you will find some new friends. And I think the hardest thing, and one of the questions I get asked a lot is somebody will say, well, imagine there's somebody who's addicted to drugs they're sitting on the couch. They're miserable. They're unhappy. And they don't have the self-esteem or self-confidence within them to feel like they're going to get better. What have you seen? Is there anything people can do when they're in that situation? If it's maybe like one little thing that gets them off the couch, maybe it's into a therapist's office, into treatment and giving them like a little bit of hope that they're going to beat their addiction. Yeah, that's a great question. So the answers come from inside the patient. Mm, right. I went to medical school for four years, residency for four years. I think I'm freaking brilliant, <laughs> but that's going to work against me when I'm working with addicts yeah. because I can't tell them how to get out of that hole. Only they can do it. What I can tell them is though, let's think of something really, really small. What's the tiniest, tiniest thing you could do that would get you off the couch? And Jordan Peterson in his book says, make your bed. Yeah. Right. So if I can get this guy on the couch to make his bed, that could be the first step to him putting his life together because you do one thing and your self-esteem goes up a little bit, yep. your confidence goes. So maybe the next day he makes his bed and he does the laundry 
And maybe the next day after that, he opens up his web browser and he finds out the closest AA meeting. But I, I don't know, it's one step at a time, but I can't tell the patient what is that first step going to be. All I can say is what's the smallest thing you can think of that will take a step forward. And that's yeah. going to be the first step. And the problem with addicts is we're so caught up in the, in the future. We're like, all right, well, how am I going to stay in recovery for 20 years? How right. am I going to make it the next year that we forget to really shift and rewire ourselves to think in the here and now and say, okay, well, maybe I should just go out and try a five to 10 minute walk. Maybe right. I should write down a goal, right? Because yeah. Consciously, if we were to step back and say, okay, if I set and achieve a goal, even if it's small, it's going to make me feel better. If I go out and take a walk, I'm going to feel better. But yeah. subconsciously, we're so caught up in the future that we can't even really wrap our minds around doing this. We're like, no, if we, I, I need to be able to go for an hour run or nothing at all. It's like all or nothing, right. the addict mentality, right? Yeah. And, and so I think one of the things I want to really get into now that we've kind of shifted out of the addictive, the addiction part of it is this sense on love. And I think you really hit home uh, a point in the book on how I think so many people get relationships wrong, that they mm -hmm. feel that once this sense of the in love feeling, the euphoric honeymoon phase wears off, that that means that this partner is not for them. They should get divorced, break up, cheat, whatever. And you tell a different story. Why is that? Yeah, so there's many different kinds of love. And romantic love in particular can be split up into two phases. And the first is passionate love. And that's what we talk about when we talk about being in love. Mm. Now, if you've ever been in love, that it is probably the most intensely pleasurable experience of a person's life. It makes you feel like the world is brand new. You feel like everything is transformed and life will never be the same again. It's so intense that if you haven't been in love and you hear someone describing it, it sounds unbelievable. You don't think it's really true. So it's an absolutely wonderful feeling. And we want that feeling to go on forever, but it doesn't. And the reason it doesn't is because the brain was simply not wired that way. On average, it only goes on for about 12 months and then it ends. Now, it can turn into a different kind of romantic love, and that is companionate love. And that's a kind of love that is for the long term. And it's about having someone else's life deeply intertwined with your own. Somebody that on the most intimate level possible, somebody that you trust that they will always have your back, Someone that will be sympathetic to you, will support you, will listen to your problems. And, and that's an absolutely wonderful relationship to have, but it's not this crazy, intensely pleasurable feeling of being in love. Now, interestingly, in love is a dopaminergic phenomenon. It's not so different from getting very, very high on drugs. The companionate love, on the other hand, is a here and now phenomenon. In love, passionate love, it's future-oriented. It's excitement, it's enthusiasm, it's motivation. Companionate love is here and now. It's satisfying, it's fulfilling. You have what you want and so enjoy it. You don't need something else. The, the problem is it's hard to make that transition right. from passionate to companionate. 
And it's harder for some people than others. Uh, people who are very dopaminergic have a much harder time. Yeah, I can imagine there's a lot of correlation between people who struggle to maintain relationships and people who struggle with addiction because we people have already just pumped their brain full of dopamine and the need to continue to get more dopamine, more dopamine, more dopamine. And you're right. I think it, it can seem very hard to make that transition because we're taught that from the society that it's like the Hallmark movie and that's how your relationship should be. We they don't really tell you that there's ups and downs. It's hard relationships to take work. And so when that initial phase wears off, our first sense is like, okay, we've lost dopamine. I need to get more dopamine. How can I get that through external validation on social media, through having flirting with somebody else at a restaurant or a bar, cheating, breaking up and finding a new partner. And you talk about in your book, how it just becomes a pattern, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I want to kind of stay on this topic of love and relationships and talk about and talk about sex. And I think you talk in the book, you, you say that people can become addicted to sex, just like they're addicted to love. And they're constantly chasing that dopamine rush. And a lot of people just end up getting attached to this euphoric feeling of sex. So they don't really get to enjoy the, the here and now benefits of being in a compassionate relationship. Correct? Yeah, that's right. One of the things uh, we mentioned is that sex recapitulates love on fast forward there are different phases of the human sexual cycle. The initial phase is desire. And of course that's dopamine, looking forward to the future. And then there is arousal as the sex begins. Once again, that's dopamine, that's looking into the future. And then you have climax, orgasm. That's here and now, it's happening. Be here right now and enjoy it. And most of us can climax is so intense most of us can come out of the future and into the present but not everyone mm. there are people when they are having sex they fantasize they're doing something completely different maybe having sex with a different partner who knows what these are people who are so dopaminergic that they are incapable of enjoying even one of the most intense experiences in the here and now moment and in the book, I write about a case history of a man who uh, is constantly chasing women and he cannot maintain a long-term relationship because he cannot make that transition from dopaminergic desire to here and now contentment. And so what he did was he just went around picking up girls in bars, taking them home and having sex with them. The problem was that the dopamine expectation kept moving backward, backward, and backward. So at first he wanted to have sex with them, but not have a relationship with them. It got to the point where all he wanted to do was the conquest. Right. As soon as they agreed to have sex with him, it was no longer a dopaminergic future. It was a here and now present dopamine turned off and he lost interest. It's fascinating, right? And you see this a lot it's almost like the dopamine, at least from what I understand, it loves the chase, doesn't like to be caught. Right. That's right. So you end up getting the girl or you get the guy, whatever you're doing, and then you, you chase it and chase it, you chase it, you get this almost high from doing that. You see a lot of people do it all the time. They get this intense dopamine rush and they finally get that person they've been chasing for so long. And they're like, eh, the grass isn't that much greener. You know, and it, you just, you start to really realize hopefully over time that, 
the person in the mirror is the person that you really need to address and fix from the inside and know that the external validation from other human beings, from social media, as you described, from drugs, from money, achievement, aren't going to fulfill who you are internally. And you, you've proven that. It's not. It's not. And, and on this topic, if I might, I just want to point out what a dopaminergic society we are becoming. You mentioned social media. People will work for likes, right? Because they get a little dopamine hit, a little dopamine hit. And like drugs, they'll have withdrawal. If they're not getting their likes, they're going to get dysphoric and unhappy. And sex is the same thing. When I see a new patient, one of the things I do is I take a relationship history. And I say, tell me about long-term dating relationships you have. And maybe these are young people in their 20s. And they say, well, the college I went to, people didn't do that. We just hooked up for one-night stands. And now I use dating apps. And none of the guys are interested in having a long-term relationship. They just want to have a one-night hookup and move on. And so these apps, the culture that we have, has made it so easy to be superficially dopamine, to get that dopamine rush with a new partner and then say, hey, you know what? You're not new anymore so long. And it's like eating Twinkies. It's very, very appealing in the short run, but it's not nutritional. And eventually you're going to get sick if you keep eating that. We are doing ourselves a disservice by making it so easy to get these little tiny dopamine hits over and over. Yeah. And I, I'm guessing that's why these dating apps have truly become so popular because of the dopamine rush you get from having somebody like you on an app or having somebody send you a message on one of these websites. It's not so much that you're actually in love. You're in love with the feeling of the future of how it's going to make you feel, right? Yeah. So Social Dilemma came out and that was obviously a huge hit and it really opened up people's eyes, I think, even further to the dangers of social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, these things on our brains and our mental health and our society. What's your take on social media? Is it really causing us to devolve as a human race and what effect does it have on the brain? Yeah, I think social media these days is pretty much analogous to cigarette companies in the mm. 50s that they had everybody smoking cigarettes. And if you didn't smoke cigarettes, you were not part of the in crowd. Right. But then we realized that they kill you. And so we tried to step away from it. And fortunately, I think the cycle is going much more quickly with social media. We're realizing much more quickly how dangerous it is. And so obviously we're not having family get togethers that much in this uh, age of COVID. But when we were, you'd get together with your family, been looking forward to it for weeks, maybe months, people you haven't seen in years, and everybody pulls out their phone and they go on their social media, right? You go out with your friends to have a wonderful dinner and you both pull out your phone and you look at your social media and you are scrolling through different posts. And after a while you get bored, but you don't stop scrolling because dopamine makes you keep going. After a while, you even realize that it's depressing you. Your mood is lowering as you continue to scroll, but you don't stop because you don't really have full control. Uh, dopamine is controlling you. And so, so is that similar I, to, the, to the feeling and what it does to your brain on drugs? Because I mean, a lot of people do drugs and they continue to do drugs, even though they know they shouldn't be doing it. Would you say it's doing something very similar 
to what no, you're it's not similar. It's identical. Mm, wow, it's identical. Yeah, wow. It's the same reason why people used to smoke cigarettes even after they knew it caused cancer. There are very few people out there who don't know that social media degrades the quality of your life. But they smoke it, they they inject heroin, mm. and they use social media. Wow, that is incredibly. I mean, fascinating just to, to hear, obviously, from somebody like yourself who like lives and breathes this stuff. And I think people need to really understand that it's not this is a ma- this is a matter of life or death. I mean, you've talked about how social media is now replacing people's need for family, community yes. to reproduce, which is dangerous as a society. We're talking about devolving as a human race, right? I think we are. Look what it's done to our attention span. At some point in the past, if you wanted to learn something, you'd read a book. Mm. And then people stopped reading books and they started reading magazines because they had these superficial articles. And then people stopped reading magazines and they started watching five-minute YouTube videos. And now even that's too long. So we watch 20-second TikTok videos. And what do you come away with from a 20-second TikTok video? Probably nothing. Maybe it may, I don't know. I don't know. It it probably makes you feel not as good about yourself because you're seeing somebody who's putting together something glamorous, but we've devolved from books to magazines, to videos, to these little things and superficial quick hits that do not help us grow as human beings. So I think we're devolving, but I think that human beings have essential common sense. Yeah, And I think our common sense is starting to exert itself. And I think more and more people are beginning to question, um, what am I doing with my life? What am I doing with my day? Do I need to perhaps think, what kind of a person do I want to be? So are you seeing somebody, are you seeing people in your practice that are coming in saying, I can't stop scrolling on social media? Have you seen anybody like that? Yeah, yeah, I have. I have. Wow. It's incredibly Um, fascinating. Well, you knew it was coming at some point. I, I think I've said this several times. If somebody really wanted to get into a good business right now is to open up a social media specific addiction rehabilitation center, because you're going to see a lot of kids. I mean, obviously adults, even just during this pandemic that our attention span has been so focused on our phones because of being trapped in our home or people watching the news or getting news on their social media, or the election that they don't realize that they've now become addicted to this thing. Yeah. And the social media companies, just like the tobacco companies, they know they're destroying people's lives. Right. You look at some of these internal documents and they know what dopamine is. They know how to manipulate the dopamine system. And their job is to take away as much of the life of their customer as they can. Their job is to destroy relationships, decimate hobbies, maybe even take out careers because every second you're paying attention to a loved one, to your job, to a hobby, you're not paying attention to social media. And they need to bring an end to that. It's freaking incredibly scary, right? Because you think about what people do now. People aren't getting on the television and watching a movie at night. They're scrolling on their phones. People are watching TikTok videos like you described. They're posting every part of their day. Businesses are built on social media. And little do people know that at the same time, it's destroying their lives versus tobacco. I think the difference, in my opinion, between that and nicotine is nicotine, 
you can't justify a lot of value off of smoking a cigarette. But I think with social media, you can at least say, well, I'm keeping up with my friends or I'm building my business or I'm selling stuff when in reality, we're not looking at the negative side effects that come with that, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, and I think it's so true the way you talk about the anticipation molecule and dopamine, you're posting a picture and saying, Ooh, I wonder if I can get more likes. I wonder if I ever get more followers. You're seeing now, even people that reach out to me, they're saying, Hey, I'll sell you 10,000 followers. I'll sell you yeah. comments. I'll sell you likes. And it's the same quote unquote buyer's remorse. I'm sure when people do this, it feels good in the moment. And then they see they just bought 10,000 robots and they had to cheat the system to get to a certain point. And then they feel an intense amount of shame and guilt because now the dopamine rush is gone. And they have to continue to do that to feel that same sense of accomplishment. So you talk in your book about this sense. I, Go ahead. I thought of what I wanted to say. If okay. I could just jump in there. Go ahead. Yeah. So okay. I, I think a big question is, all right, fine. If I give up social media, what should I do? Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I think that's worth talking about because there are wonderful, wonderful things that can do. And I believe that for mental health, there's relationships, of course, right? but there's also creativity and making things with your hands. Mm. These days, so much of our life is interacting with electronic bits, things that don't really have an existence. In the old days, we used to do real things. We, we would play musical instruments. We would paint. We would draw. We would do woodworking, knitting, cooking. Things not with bits, but with atoms. And I think that if people are thinking about how do I wean myself off of social media, that's what they should think about. How can they be creative with atoms? So it, would you say that using social media is similar to using things like cocaine and Oxycontin that you can't just do a little bit of it? You need to completely stay off of it? Or is there some a healthy relationship that people can have with it? I think it's easier to keep social media under control than, than it would be with actual chemicals. Right. But I think you've got to um, set firm rules, mm. i.e. how many hours a day, how many hours a week, and pay attention to whether or not you stay within those rules. And if you find yourself exceeding those rules, you have to be honest with yourself and say, you know what? Um, I'm not possessing it. It's possessing me. And maybe I need to remove it from my life completely. Right. And I think you said, I've heard you say, and I think a lot of people talk about addiction in this way, in order to really see how addicted you are to something, see how it's impacting your life. If you're sitting there yes. scrolling on social media all day, every day, if you're constantly comparing yourself to the people you're following, if you're posting pictures just to get validation, you're getting into to wars and comments online, then maybe you should stay mm -hmm. off of social media. But if you can have that healthy sense of balance where you're saying, okay, I'm going to limit my use every day. I'm going to turn it off when I'm with my kids, my family. When I'm at dinner, I'm not going to be taking pictures or scrolling on my phone. Then, I mean, yeah, I think by all means it can be healthy just like anything else. Just like I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that can have a glass of wine and not drink the whole bottle. There's plenty of people that can obviously there's people that exercise healthily and people who exercise for hours and they have an unhealthy addiction. It's just the same, same kind of thing. It's like a pendulum. 
And you talk about this sense of harmony in your book, which I think is important for people to understand. I don't want people to be scared of dopamine because I think dopamine is a beautiful thing. Dopamine is what allows us to set and achieve goals. Dopamine is what allows us to make long-term plans so that we can make a difference in people's lives and have a successful career. And dopamine is what gets us off the couch to start exercising. So what are some ways in your experience, maybe some things you do yourself to have a healthy relationship with dopamine so that when you are stressed, when you are feeling depressed, you're not looking for that instant gratification, that instant hit of dopamine. You're able to kind of have something a more sustainable plate of things you kind of turn to. Yeah. There's something that psychiatrists call an observing ego. Mm. And that is that being able to take a little step back from your thoughts and see what's going on in your head and being honest about it. So if I'm scrolling through social media and I'm getting these little hits of dopamine, I kind of take a step back and I say, okay, what am I experiencing here? Am I happy or unhappy? If I'm happy, well, maybe it's okay to keep going. It's good to be happy. But if you're honest with yourself, you will often say, I'm bored and I'm unhappy. I don't know why I keep doing this. I don't know why it's hard to put the cell phone down but I think I need to. So I, I think it's the, the combination of cultivating this habit of paying attention to what are you really feeling? Not what you expect yourself to feel, not what somebody thinks you ought to feel, but what are you really feeling? And, and then being honest with yourself about that. I think that's one part of maturity. When we're young, like when we're teenagers, we think we're supposed to enjoy certain things. Right. And so we trick ourselves into thinking we're doing it. And when you get old, you kind of say, the heck with that. I don't like that. I'm not going to do it. And I think that that's an important part of getting control of your dopamine. You use it to give you the passion and the motivation to pursue things that you truly care about. And then you step away from the things that you really don't care about that are just grinding up your time and your energy. You're right. And I think you say in the book that your biology is not your destination, right? And I yeah. think you can right. rewire your behaviors. And I know just, I mean, I'll use myself as an, as an example, just because it's something that I had to do to beat my addiction was my normal was every time I would feel stressed or anxious or fearful or whatever, I would turn to Oxycontin. That would be my habit. Stressed, mm -hmm. anxious, fearful, Oxy in my nose. And then once I learned to manage that emotion in a healthier way, maybe it was going for a run when I was in jail or going for runs when I got out of jail and then exercising, calling a mentor, writing my fears down on paper. Slowly but surely, I started to rewire my brain in some new neural pathways. And I felt this sense of pleasure from going on a run now. I felt a sense of pleasure from staying away from the drugs. There's pleasure in that because you're doing the things that you should be doing on a daily basis. And I think if people can really focus on just getting small wins under their belt every single day, doing the things that they know they should be doing, whether it's exercising, meditating, hanging out with a good group of people, over time, I think they'll learn to have a healthier relationship with dopamine and not fall into that trap, right? I think that's right. Healthy behavior is a habit. You can't jump to the finish line in one leap you got to start out with doing small things consistently and that will strengthen your brain and enable you to do big things under extraordinary circumstances. Absolutely. And, and the one thing I wanted to get back to really quick and then we'll wrap up is 
you hear a lot about addicts that they make up these lies and they manipulate people. They'll make up these crazy stories and, and then you, they, you start to believe your own lies. I did it. Plenty of people do it. And you talk about in your book, this, this sense of psychosis and that people who are schizophrenic start to believe these hallucinations. Now I'm sure that's not the same as what I'm talking about, but is there any similarities in people believing their own BS and getting that euphoric sense of dopamine? I think that delusions and psychosis are different from believing lies. Gotcha. But I think that believing lies is very much related to the pleasure you get uh, from dopamine and the drugs. Mm. And the reason is that we are motivated to see the world the way we want to see it. And if we need something to be true, oftentimes we will make it true in our own minds. Sometimes that's a good thing. Right. Uh, sometimes you've got to be unrealistically optimistic in order to get something done. The odds of getting a book published are a little bit long. And I was sort of deluding myself when I was writing this book right. Um, right. and it worked out well, but other times when you ignore reality, it does not work out so very well. Yeah, absolutely. One of the biggest takeaways I got from what you've said throughout this episode is in order to change your life, change your behaviors, change your relationship with dopamine is you have to be honest with yourself. You have to be really self-aware about your choices, your behaviors, and knowing that it's up to you internally to make the decision to stop destroying your life. And even though it might seem insurmountable at times, it has to come from within. No one else is going to do it for you. So I know you have this book, The Molecule More, which has done very well. And there's a lot of amazing things inside of it. What's next for you? Like, what are you working on next? So currently I'm working on a book about the unconscious mind. Wow. And how it gives rise to uh, traditions of magic, uh, and the supernatural. Wow. It's fascinating. It's good. Yeah. You continue to impress me and just reading about your bio and everything you've done for mental illness and addiction. It's incredibly inspiring. And I'm going to invite people to, if they haven't already listened to your book or, or bought your book to do so, because it's fascinating to be able to understand how this one molecule works. It literally I think, and I agree, will determine the fate of our human race because people are more addicted than ever. People are spending more time on social media. Divorce rates are up. Suicides up. All these things that are influenced and impacted by dopamine. And the more we can gain understanding and clarity on how this thing works and use it to our advantage and not our disadvantage and do the small things every day that lead to these sustainable dopamine hits and can manage the balance between that and the here and now neurotransmitters will not only be happy throughout our life, will be fulfilled. So I invite people to kind of hit the pause button throughout this because Dr. Lieberman shared a lot on this episode about the brain, about dopamine, about how things work that you're going to want to pay attention to, whether it's you, whether it's a spouse, a loved one, whoever it is that's struggling with their life. And so I wanted to really take the time to thank you once again, Dr. Lieberman, for coming on, taking the time to chat with me. It's been incredible. And the audience is going to get a ton of value out of this episode and wanted to really thank you once again. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. Yeah. And the only thing that I ask of, of you that are listening to this is to not only buy his book, check out his TED Talk and reach out to him if you thought that this episode really touched your heart. Screenshot it, share your biggest takeaway with me and one thing you're going to change in your life that's going to increase your dopamine in a positive way and not a negative way. And uh, once again, thank you for listening to this episode of The Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes. I'll see you next time.